Hi, and welcome to Listen Up A-Holes, the only Marvel Cinematic Universe podcast that if it's going to die, it may as well be while driving a sword through the heart of that murderous hag. I'm story expert Lonnie Diane Rich of Chipperish Media. And I'm Joshua Unruh, superhero scholar from Pulp Diction Productions. Together, we're working our way through the good, the bad, and I know him. He's a friend from work (laughs) of the MCU. So listen up, A-Holes. We're going to talk about Thor Ragnarok. Okay, uh, welcome to the Four Color Facts, where maybe you get the curtain of my general sexual preferences pulled back further than you might like, because, comrades, this movie has not one but two lady leads who made me feel a way about things, but for completely different reasons. Let's start this potentially awkward conversation with my goth milf, Hella. Oh, God. Is it too much? A little much? I'm just being honest. It's too raw? No, just everybody. It's at Joshua Unruh. <laughs> I take no responsibility. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Am I the only person in the world that finds Kate Blanchett attractive, especially when she's being mean and murdering people? Don't fucking judge me. <laughs> Actually, I'm going to be honest right now. Uh, when I wrote this, I had not figured out why both Hela and Valkyrie were so attractive to me when I, they mm-hmm. seem so different on the surface. But yeah. as I pondered it, the fact of the matter is they're both Veronica's just in different way. And oh, we have we've been over that. We've been over that. So <laughs> it's just like a palette swap on Veronica's. You know? OK. All right. Anyway. Anyway. Whoo. Yeah. <laughs> at Joshua Unruh. Come for me. Uh, All right. So. Uh, Let's still start with Hela. So in the original Norse mythology, Hela is the monstrous daughter of Loki. I'm just saying this because I find it fascinating how things get all twisted around into the 616 and then get Mm -hmm. twisted around even further into the MCU. So original Norse, daughter of Loki, beautiful Mm -hmm. in one aspect and horrendous in another, possibly a thing cursed with Uh half-life. It's a little ambiguous. She is not welcome in Asgard and is therefore given the icy lands of the unworthy dead to be her Mm. kingdom. These lands are named for her and typically given simply as hell. Sometimes it gets translated as Hela. I think that mostly that shows up in the 616 because they didn't want to say hell all the time Mm -hmm. and also wanted to make sure that it was obviously feminine, you know. And one day, when Ragnarok approaches, she will lead the unworthy dead out of her halls and onto the ship Nagalfar, which is made from the fingernails and toenails of the damned. Wow. And they will sail on that ship to Midgard and then on to Asgard, causing havoc and assisting in the ending of the worlds. Mm-hmm. I like mythology, you guys, so tough luck. <laughs> We're going even further back than Four Color Facts. <laughs> Hella entered the 616 in 1964 from the pens of Stan and Jack. Drink! She is more complicated in her origin and less complicated in the way she plays out than the original Norse. She is sometimes Loki's daughter and other times Odin's, and sometimes she's written into existence by a younger version of Loki who based Hela on a handmaiden that Hela had created in her own youthful and innocent image. I'm mm-hmm. not kidding. 
This is much more complicated. <laughs> Regardless of how she came into being, though, the Norns prophesied that she would be more dangerous to Asgard than anything, even Loki, which is why Odin made her Queen of the Dead, which is probably what made her so dangerous. Self-fulfilling <laughs> <Right>. prophecies. <laughs> Hela has the natural ability to draw out an Asgardian soul at the moment of their death and take that soul into her possession. She has many unworthy human souls, but she covets the souls of Asgardians and heroes, two groups that Odin typically claims as his own. She's put on many machinations to take both Odin's soul and Thor's soul, though her own sense of honor and nobility often pushes her to allow them to live, as Thor especially tends to come into her power by sacrificing himself for others. Uh -huh. Yeah, she wants it. She wants those souls so bad, but she's like, God, if you're going to be a good dude about it, go home. <laughs> <laughs> Which is kind of shocking she hasn't wound up with Odin's because, as we'll discuss, Odin is like almost never a good dude, but whatever. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But do not discount the pride of Hela either. When Odin died and Hela went to collect his soul, she was challenged by Pluto of Olympus. Mm -hmm. They battled to a draw, and Hela finally restored Odin to life just so that Pluto couldn't have him. Oh, that is. <laughs> A cosmic level of petty, and I love it. <laughs> Hela is a conquering villain on a pretty much cosmic scale, but while Loki lusts after Asgard's throne and Malekith seeks the destruction of Midgard and the overthrow of Odin, all Hela wants is souls. <laughs> Her power is in the dead, and the more powerful the dead, either in number or in puissance, the more powerful she grows. That's why most of the time her machinations involve the theft of large numbers of human souls, or literally any number of Asgardian souls. <laughs> Again, especially if it's Thor or Odin. Mm -hmm. So in closing, I just want to say that that headdress of hers is one of the most Jack Kirby things I've ever seen on screen. <laughs> and that includes cartoons he literally helped design like Thundar the Barbarian. So I mm -hmm. love it. And every little bit of serious Kirby magic that makes it into the MCU gives me hope for the future. All right. It's a weird wrap up, but I got to be honest, that headdress is a thing. <laughs> so now my other crush, Valkyrie. Mm -hmm. Oh, she's great. Uh, she is great. Uh, but the 616 Valkyrie is really different. Mm -hmm. This is true in personality, but also in look. So born Brunhilde, she is a statuesque blonde and blue-eyed Asgardian woman who first appeared in The Avengers in 1970 as the leader of the Valkyor, Odin's shield mm -hmm. maidens, who were tasked with gathering the worthy dead to Valhalla. Now... I'm going to cruise right past this little bit of mythology unless you would like to talk more about Valkyries. <laughs> nope, you go right ahead. You're good? You know all I'm about good. the Valkyries? You're good with them? I'm, you know, vaguely familiar with the Valkyries. <laughs> okay, I'm not, this is not an attempt for me to shame you. I just never know when you're going to go, now wait just a damn minute. I never know. It's always a surprise. So I was giving you an opportunity to wait just oh. a damn minute me. Well, thank you. So millennia ago, Odin and the rest of the Pantheon's sky gods, so that's like Zeus, Jupiter, you know, just mm -hmm. all your usual sky god types, all raw, <laughs> all of them got together yeah. and made a deal with the Celestials, who I may have mentioned are giant god geneticists. Mm-hmm. Yeah, made a deal with them that basically forbade them from interacting with Earth. Mm-hmm. That was the deal they made with the Celestials so that the Celestials would not get real damn cranky with them. Mm -hmm. 
This left the Valkyr with only collecting Asgardian souls. And as Asgardians rarely die, Brunhilde mm-hmm. found herself bored. Yeah. <laughs> she didn't have anything to do, you know. So mm-hmm. she went looking for adventure and found Amora the Enchantress, a character that we have discussed before. Mm-hmm. Amora convinced Brunhilde that they should adventure together, and Brunhilde agreed. When Brunhilde became aware that Amora has the morality of a feral cat, she tried to break (laughs) off the partnership, but Amora wasn't having it. Amora stole Brunhilde's soul essence and used it as a power source off and on, sometimes bequeathing the powers of a Valkyrie to herself or her minions. Ooh. Yeah, Amora's awful. Like, she's Mm -hmm. very bad. Is she perhaps amoral? Oh, yeah. You know what? Usually she's just called the Enchantress, so I hadn't thought about it, but that might have something to do with that naming. Yeah. Now, eventually the Enchantress dropped Brunhilde's soul into a human woman named Barbara Norris, who, due to mystical amnesia, never realized that she wasn't the real Brunhilde. And let me say that while I stand by the concept of the secret identity as a staple of superhero fiction and is frankly vital to the concept, there are better and worse ways to do it. And this shit is a worse way. (laughs) Even though it's kind of similar, but an inversed approach to Thor as Donald Blake, it Mm -hmm. really just comes like from woman on woman violence. Mm -hmm. And in addition to women on woman violence, it feels really gaslighty because she thinks that she's the real Brunhilde, but she's only kind of the real yeah. Brunhilde. I'm having a little trouble articulating why it skeeves me out, but it does skeeve <laughs> me out. I don't like it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Brunhilde received a bit of a raised profile in the 616 as a founding member of the Secret Avengers, a covert arm of the Avengers that Steve Rogers put together when he was named America's top cop by the president, which is exactly <laughs> as fucking douchey as it sounds. <laughs> She continued to rise in popularity when she was tasked by the All-Mother with creating new Valkyries from Earth Women in 2013's The Fearless Defenders. Mm-hmm. Valkyrie recruited, are you ready? Misty Knight. Oh, I love her. <laughs> she also recruited Danielle Moonstar, who is a, an mm-hmm. X-Men related character from the New Mutants who had actually been an Earth woman turned into a Valkyrie for many years now. Mm-hmm. And she recruited Hippolyta, the queen of the Amazons, but not the wow. one that shows up in Wonder Woman because these are different comic book companies owned by <laughs> different people who are drawing from the same classical roots. Mm-hmm. And last but not least, she recruited a scientist from Earth named Annabelle Riggs, and they all came together to stop Caroline Le Fay, the daughter of Morgan Le Fay, and her mm-hmm. doom maidens, who are corrupted undead Valkyries who have awakened in the absence of the regular Valkyries. Mm-hmm. Now, Brunhilde and Annabelle Riggs, you know, they hooked up. They became mm-hmm. girlfriends. And... Brunhilde actually made... Wow, in went, the... Oh, okay, no, this was 2013. I was like, in the 60s? Oh, good Lord, no. Absolutely. <laughs> the 60s, I'd have been like, on. that's kind of progressive. I like it, but that's okay. That's crazy pants. Mm-hmm. In the 60s, Sue was still taking Mr. Fantastic's bullshit like she wasn't in charge. It's, no, huh? no, no. No, I'm sorry to break it to you. No, this was 2013. Yeah. So Brunhilde and Annabelle become an item. And eventually they wound up merged together, body and soul, because Annabelle was dying and it was the only way that they could save her life. So they exist in a kind of Shazam, Billy Batson situation, changing Mm -hmm. places depending on who is walking the earth at any given moment. So Mm -hmm. they can never actually be together, despite the fact that they are in some ways closer than they've ever been. Super tragic, right? Yeah. 
That situation ended when Brunhilde, as leader of the Asgardians of the Galaxy, that's right, was beheaded by Malekith during the War of the Realms. I'm not saying any more about that, because I wouldn't <laughs> be surprised if that's like the fifth or sixth Avengers movie. So, mm-hmm. like, I'm an, or what are we up to? Whatever, you get it. Four now, I think. War yeah. of the Realms could absolutely mm-hmm. be a thing the Avengers are dealing with after we get more Asgardian nonsense in Love and Thunder. So I'm not even All saying right. anything other than the words War of the Realms. Just okay. pretend that it's a big mystery <laughs> that'll never be solved. Like when Obi-Wan said the Clone Wars and before we found out what those were and we were happier when we didn't know. <laughs> okay, the Grand Master. Finally, mm-hmm. somebody I don't have the hots for. Great. (laughs) I know. It's so rare. Usually we come to these movies and you're very interested in all of these big beefy dudes that are throwing shields and hammers and whatnot. But this time, it's my wild ride, apparently. All right. All right. The 616 Grandmaster first appeared in Avengers in 1966 and was later revealed to be one of the elders of the universe. I have mentioned Mm -hmm. the elders before. Yes. Mostly when talking about Ego and the Collector, and now here's Mm -hmm. the Grandmaster, so I finally have to explain what they are. All right, so each Elder is the last survivor of an extinct race, many of them races that were earliest to evolve after the Big Bang. So maybe species is more accurate? I don't Mm -hmm. know. The Elders individually realize that they have nearly infinite lifespans as long as they retain the will to live. So each one chose a hobby that would define their whole identity, such as collecting things, games of skill and strategy, feats of strength, or various scientific endeavors. Mm -hmm. They also largely became giant assholes convinced that they were more important and powerful than they really were. So, Mm -hmm. to sum up, a group of people who decided their hobby was their whole identity and then turned into sacks of dicks. Are they a metaphor for fandom? You be the judge. Okay. Now, when it comes to powers, the elders each possess a portion of the power primordial, which are remnants of the primordial energies of the Big Bang that still exist in the warp and weft of the universe. Mm Mm-hmm. The Grandmaster is, as you may have guessed, the elder who focused on games of skill and strategy. He often pits a group of heroes or villains against another to decide a bet with some other entity of great power. So in his first appearance, he pitted the Avengers against the Squadron Sinister to decide if Kang the Conqueror's planet would be destroyed or if his lover would be resurrected. Mm -hmm. So that's a pretty good taste of the shenanigans he gets up to. (laughs) The 616 Grandmaster is a lot more cruel and calculating than the despotic goofball we get in Ragnarok. And to be honest, I think the best outcome would really be a combination of the two. Mm-hmm. A hedonist immortal whose favorite pastime is violence, and so he creates a cosmic WWE where he can enjoy the sheer spectacle of the competition as much as the actual bookmaking. Love mm-hmm. it. Way into it. <laughs> All right. Scourge, a.k.a. the Executioner. Mm-hmm. Now, I love Scourge, and he deserved better than this. Okay. I mean, I don't have a problem with Carl Urban. Or this version of Scourge, I kind of like what he does in the movie, more or less. But this is another example of them strip mining the 616 for all its best bits and then trimming Mm -hmm. off, you know, most of the poignancy that made him work. Yeah. Now, if you'd like to hear more about why Scourge is great, go back to our 44th episode where I talk about heroes teaming up with villains. I'm not going to go back into it right now. It's back there in episode 44. (laughs) But I will say this. Just remember, Scourge stood alone at Gyalabru, and that answer is enough. That's all I'm saying. (laughs) Okay, 
so we kind of have to talk about a storyline, and I don't do this a lot. Like uh, I kind of bounced around from issue to issue with uh, Spider-Man because there was a lot of good stuff in those first issues that needed to be talked about. And I talked about Civil War because it's garbage, but you can at least see how the movie came out of it. But I don't do this very often. And to to everyone's surprise, I'm not going to talk about a Thor story. (laughs) Because a lot of the stuff going on in this movie as a backdrop is from Mm -hmm. a story called Planet Hulk. Mm -hmm. So the reason that this is kind of a big disconnect is that Ragnarok is like, you know, a cool spring of silly heroic fun times. And Planet Hulk is a story of love, loss, revenge and fucking tragedy. Wow. No, but for real. So beginning in 2006 (laughs) and running into 2007, Planet Hulk begins in New Avengers Illuminati one shot and then Mm -hmm. proceeds into the Incredible Hulk number 88 through 91. The main storyline was told in Incredible Hulk 92 through 105 and Giant Size Hulk volume two number one. I'm also pretty sure that it's all collected in one place. Okay. But holy shit. So the Illuminati. So storylines would jump between different series like that? Like it would start in one series and then jump to another? This is not entirely typical, but it's not wildly Mm -hmm. atypical either. So Mm -hmm. part of the thing here was that while Hulk was off planet, which we're going to talk about here in a minute, Mm -hmm. his regular series was taken over by Hercules and it became the Incredible Herc. And it's fucking Mm -hmm. amazing. And I recommend it to literally (laughs) everyone on Earth. It's so damn good, you guys. Mm Mm-hmm. So in this case, we had to introduce the thing in this story about the Illuminati, who I'm going to explain here in a minute, and then it will make sense why it had to happen in this fucking Illuminati story that is just God. Well, we'll get to it. (laughs) And, And then, yeah, then it just bounced around until it was all done. It was mostly in just two books. Giant mm-hmm. Size Hulk Volume 2, number one, I think is kind of an annual for the regular Hulk book. So it's mm-hmm. technically got another title, but it's part of the regular Hulk run. Yeah. Clear as mud, right? Seriously. Right. This is why I don't actually recommend people just walking into comic shops and trying to pick up comics. Like, find uh, somebody who can babysit you through this. I mm-hmm. find it difficult at this point. Mm-hmm. It's crazy. Mm-hmm. But I digress. The Illuminati. Yes. This is a group of super beings brought together by Tony Stark. So already there's a there's a poison pill. Yes. <laughs> he wanted to create a superhero governing body. Tony mm-hmm. Stark wanted this. Tony mm-hmm. Stark wanted a governing body of superheroes. <laughs> He invited Black Bolt, King of the Inhumans, Namor, Mm -hmm. King of Atlantis, Charles Xavier of the X-Men, Doctor Strange, Mr. Fantastic of the Fantastic Four, and the Black Panther. Mm -hmm. Everyone smooth opted out of the superhuman government for a lot of reasons, but mainly because it's an authoritarian nightmare. They all did agree to meet periodically to share information and make big sweeping backroom deals on behalf of superhumans as a whole. Doesn't sound shady at all, right? (laughs) No. Everyone except for Black Panther, who was like, this is gross. Don't call me again. Try not to be assholes or I will out this little (laughs) clusterfuck quick. That's (laughs) seriously Black Panther is the best. He knew what was up from jump. So that's the Illuminati. Just a Mm -hmm. giant bundle of bad ideas that meet around a big circular table to make decisions that are above their pay grade. But they're all such (laughs) ego fucking maniacs. They don't realize it. Yeah, actually sounds really familiar. Yeah, it's a little too fucking real, honestly. (laughs) A little bit, a little bit. 
So after the Hulk accidentally destroys Las Vegas, what are you going to do? Maria Hill Mm -hmm. asks Tony to do something about him. Again, more bad ideas. It's just bad Mm -hmm. ideas thrown after bad ideas. Right. Tony suggests to the Illuminati that they fire Bruce Banner off to an uninhabited planet where the Hulk can live a life of bounding around, fighting megafauna, and generally having the time of his life. Wow. Namor, (laughs) so rarely the voice of reason, but Namor (laughs) says they have no right to banish an ally. And also, he points out that if the Hulk does get to come back, he's going to come back from revenge and feed them all their collective teeth. (laughs) Sure. So he votes no, and everyone Uh else votes yes, and they trick Hulk into going to orbit so that they can shoot him off to another planet, and Namor quietly goes back home and hopes that Hulk reads the minutes on this meeting if he ever comes back to kick everybody's ass. (laughs) Well, I I could definitely see why Hulk would, you know, read the minutes of the meeting first. Oh, no, he's not going to. Namor's just going to, like, stay on the bottom of the ocean and be like, I don't know how long he can hold his breath, but we're going to wait him out. Now, unfortunately, this plan goes horribly awry. I know you're shocked. What with Reed Richards and Tony Stark being involved. Why didn't it go off flawlessly? Jeez, I can't imagine. (laughs) So a wormhole crops up and sucks Hulk to Sakaar. Now, on Sakaar, the Hulk basically lives out the plot of the movie Gladiator, but on a much bigger scale. Oh, wow. I don't want to give anything away because this story is legit amazing and it's full of battles and friendship Mm -hmm. and romance and pathos. But that's where Korg and Meek both come from. They are war bound, which are like blood Mm -hmm. brothers, kind of like the the siblings that battle chooses for you. They're Mm -hmm. war bound to Hulk and part of his like super tight knit surrogate family on Sakaar. And and I mean, it gets big. There's like an emperor that needs overthrowing and a prophecy that probably has to do with Hulk, but maybe not. It's hard to tell. Mm -hmm. And just, again, so much like pathos and tragedy and all that stuff. And so even though I highly recommend it, and I really, really do, and I also highly recommend Ragnarok, it's got a really different flavor from this movie. It's way more tragic and serious. Mm -hmm. And this is, again, the MCU maybe strip mining the 616 a little too much, honestly. Mm -hmm. As much as I like all the Sakaar stuff in this movie, I'm like, damn, but now we're never going to get a Planet Hulk movie. And nobody at me about the animated Planet Hulk movie. They dashed it off for like $3 one weekend. (laughs) Read the comics. So I can understand why people were a little disappointed with the backdrop of this movie, even though it doesn't really have anything to do with Planet Hulk. You know, I mean, that's I can understand. Yeah. Well, you know, of course, to me, I I had no reference for it. So I didn't realize what an opportunity we were losing by using Sakaar in this way. Um, Just covering all my bases, Lonnie. And also, maybe I'll make you read Planet Hulk. It's pretty great. Uh, you know what? Yeah, I got to do that. I got to start reading some every week. I think everybody should have to drink every time you say, yeah, maybe I'll make you read that. And then I don't read it. Oh, no, you may have noticed <laughs> and our listeners may have noticed that I don't say maybe anymore because we have a new approach to the MCU and we're going to actually catch up. Uh, this is very true. This is very true. 
Just yes. I stopped saying maybe. I got a plan now. Okay. All right. I will let you make that plan. But for right now, we are watching movies and movies have production history. So this movie, Thor Ragnarok, was released on November 3rd, 2017. It was directed by Taika Waititi. And this is Waititi's first Marvel movie, although he signed up for the next Thor movie slated for release in 2021. Um, he is listed as a writer on that movie in 2021, along with Jennifer Caton Robinson. And I'm kind of excited to see an MCU movie written by an indigenous man and a woman. So that, for me, is something that I'm really, really looking forward to. Plus the fact that now I like Thor, guys. We'll get into that in just a minute. Now, hang uh, on. Was, I got more what? for you in that movie. Like, that yes. one is called Love and Thunder. And in case you oh, didn't realize, they're bringing back Jane Foster and they're giving her a fucking hammer. Ooh, I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't know anything about it. I just thought that they had it slated. So, uh, really so I think excited. that's going to be really exciting. That is going to be very, very cool. Uh, so this movie, Ragnarok, was written by Eric Pearson and Craig Kyle and Christopher L. Yost as a team. Uh, Pearson was a writer on Agent Carter, and he wrote a handful of Marvel one-shots before working on Thor Ragnarok. Kyle and Yost worked on a lot of pre-MCU like Marvel animated series and video games, mostly Avengers and X-Men. Oh, shit. If those guys are responsible for Planet Hulk, I'm sorry. It's not very good. I didn't like it. I don't know. I didn't see the animated film. (laughs) They did a lot of that kind of animated stuff. Um, But this is the first official MCU property that they worked on. Uh, The box office for uh, Thor Ragnarok was $854 million with a $180 million budget. So the profit in the 670s there. Uh, Putting it in the high middle of the pack for Marvel movies. It always feels really disgusting when we talk about the money that these movies make. Oh, yeah. It's It just feels kind of gross. It is really gross. I don't like to be slapped in the face face that I'm just mm-hmm. being served up the dreams of my childhood on a silver platter by a capitalistic f- fun factory. Like it, I don't <laughs> like to have it slapped in my face, but here we are with a production history every time. Every single time. Does it help that um, an indigenous man took this as an opportunity to completely take down colonialism? Does that help? I mean, it helps. It helps. But all them checks still went to Disney. So plus That's... minus plus minus. Yeah. Oh, God. Actually, that does kind of make it worse. Anyway, okay. (laughs) Thor Ragnarok has a 93% rating for critics and an 87% rating for audience um, appreciation on Rotten Tomatoes. So I thought that was really interesting. And here's the thing, guys. I'm going to start talking about this with my complicated (laughs) history with Thor, right? As anybody who's been listening to this show knows, I have not liked Thor up until this point. Um, And I have mentioned more than once that I didn't like Thor Ragnarok. We're going to talk about that a little bit, too. Um, But Thor, generally, like I didn't like him as a character because he didn't feel like he fit with the rest of the MCU. Although, as the MCU goes broader and broader, like Doctor Strange, Guardians of the galaxy he stands out a little less so that's okay but i know that for you this is a feature not a bug that's right i liked that we were branching out into at the time imagine what a sweet summer child i was that i was like oh thor this will get weird and it was years before we were gonna get a talking raccoon in a tree But we did. And that's the thing that makes the MCU so fascinating is that it does have such an incredibly broad scope. Yeah. And Thor was our first inkling of that, honestly. And so for that, Mm -hmm. I really appreciate it. Yes, absolutely. Um, the reasons why I've never liked him, though, are because he's overpowered. No, he I know, Andrew, we're not having that freaking discussion again. He's I not know, as I'm overpowered just... as Captain Marvel. but 
He's not. Neither one of them are overpowered. That's not how superhero works. Okay, my flag is planted. Okay, fine. Let's just move past that. It's how narrative works. So anyway, um, and he's also been kind of dumb in his movies. And these are two things that that I really don't like in Hero. Um, Also, they keep removing him from his central narrative conflict, which drives me crazy. The main conflict here is Thor versus Hela. He sees her for the first time like 23 minutes. And by 2445, they're in this. Is that the Rainbow Bridge? Is that what that's called? Yeah. Or is that the bridge that goes out? What's the name for the big, like, rainbowy pathway that... They are the same name. They are the Rainbow Bridge. They are the Bifrost. Okay, so that's all the Bifrost. Okay. Yeah, that's all the Bifrost, which I don't think is how you would say it in Old German, but it sounds weird in Old German, so ignore it. <laughs> Bifrost. But one of them is, like, flat and just kind of runs out over Asgard, and the other one is a tunnel that's like a wormhole, but they're both the same thing? The rainbow bridge that, that the leads from Asgard out to where yeah. you actually get to take your cosmic taxi. Yeah. That's the only place that it goes. Like it only goes from Asgard out to where the bridge is. So it's not technically okay. part of the, you know, like teleporting apparatus, but it's all the rainbow bridge to Asgard. Okay. All right. That's it's fine. A, you know, it's just a little I... metaphor, a little symbolic there moving out of the city. But yeah, it's all the Bifrost. I get confused, but it's fine. Um, So anyway, it's like a minute later, you know, after they they first confront her and she melts Thor's hammer, you know, um, that they're in this, you know, the Bifrost or whatever. She knocks him out of it. Um, She knocks him out flying through space. And then that's it. Until like the end of the movie, you know, it's like the midpoint. It's the midpoint when he finally, you know, learns through Heimdall what's going on with Hela and decides that he has to get back to Asgard, you know, and that becomes a whole thing. But we go like a whole hour and some change, you know, with just kind of nonsense running around. Now, I like that nonsense a lot more now than I did the first time. The first time, because I had such a history of Thor just annoying me, and then we separated him from his central narrative conflict again, drove me crazy. And it, I did not like this movie. I've talked publicly about how I don't like this movie. I take it all back. Not about the first two movies. Those are still crap. But this one, hey, huh? I actually Whoa, whoa, like. whoa, 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 whoa. What? They're not great. What? They're the bottom third. But listen, <laughs> eh, bottom middle third. Anyway, the point is, I know you hate it. And I get why you hate this like weird narrative bifurcation mm-hmm. all over the place but at this point they've done it three times running and i kind of <laughs> hope they keep doing it like it's on purpose now i don't even i don't even know but i have to say the more <laughs> thor we get though the more i like him as a character and this is where i really start to like him like when uh, you know when we talked about um Endgame, you know, Infinity War. Mm-hmm. Um, the Thor there I liked because he he had had loss. He had darkened. He was grungier and grimier and more troubled than this, you know, beautiful blonde boy with all the power, you know, um, from the earlier movies. So I actually like him a lot more. And that starts here in Ragnarok. We have this emotional vulnerability within him where he has kind of lacked a physical vulnerability in the past. I think that's a really, really good move. I love snarky Thor. I love him. Mm-hmm. You know, that internal darkness just making him snip and snipe at people. Like, I love that whole opening, you know, uh, with Surtur, right? Is that how you pronounce it? Surtur? Yes, with Surtur, yes. 
With Surtur. Okay. Um, so I love that whole opening, you know, where he's just snarking at Surtur. Um, it's all really, really fun. And I enjoy him so much more. So this movie I've changed my mind about, especially, I mean, narratively, I think it's still a mess. I think it's still got narrative problems. But everything that it does... I think is really, really good. And the fact is, while narrative is important, while narrative is very important to me, there are other things that you can do within a story that have value. And I completely recognize that. And the other things that this story does, um, I think have a lot of value and are really, really interesting to look at. Um, for one thing, we've got these identity stories, which of course, you know, I love me an identity story, you know? Oh, yeah. Um, I, I love from Valkyrie when we get hers. Listen closely, Your Majesty. This is Sakaar, not Asgard. I'm a scrapper, not a Valkyrie. Like right there, we are directly addressing Valkyrie's identity story, you mm -hmm. know, and what her understanding of herself is. Um, we have Thor losing his hammer and his hair and his eye. <laughs> You know, yeah. who is he? You know, he's the god of thunder. What does that even mean anymore? I love the fact that we've got all of these nicknames for him. He's Sparkles. He's New Doug. He's Point Break, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, we are, we are messing with his sense of identity. And like each of those nicknames sort of reference something about him, but not the whole thing that create that is Thor, that mm -hmm. what is Thor, who is Thor. So I freaking love that and this transition in identity right before he's reunited with hulk who is also transformed is really interesting now hulk of course is no longer banner you know while he's hulk there is only hulk in there and he talks about banner in third person you know that is a separate identity you are banner's friend mm -hmm. right yeah so he's got that division in his identity which i think is really really cool um, and then we get banner back you know, and he talks about Hulk as though he's the other guy, you know. Um, so it's it's really interesting. He was like, you know, Hulk was running the show and I was stuck in the trunk, you know, but he doesn't even remember. Like when he wakes up, he doesn't remember any of that. So Hulk's whole sense of identity, which when he's still Hulk and Thor is trying to leave, Hulk's like, no, friend, don't leave because they became friends, you know. Yeah. Um, it's just it's so Interesting. And I think that you could spend so much time just kind of meditating on like the the idea of identity and what it means, how you identify something all the way to Asgard. Asgard isn't a place. It's a people. Yes. Right. Even Asgard's identity is shifting in the way that Thor sees it, um, which I think is just such a beautiful shift in perspective. You know, for this character, I, I absolutely love it. Um, we get a little bit of this from Hela. I am not a queen or a monster. I am the goddess of death. You know, yeah. who she is and who she believes herself to be. You know, I mean, these are her brothers. That was her father. But that's not who she identifies as. That's not something that even matters to her and her sense of her own identity. I mean, she is basically personified feminine rage. And we're going to talk about that. Um, but it's it's so interesting the way that we do that. When she um, gives Scourge, right, the yeah. identity of yes. the executioner, you know, and the person who names things has power over what they are and how they identify. So that in itself is really interesting. Um, I love, you know, Thor is I'm the god of thunder. And then whenever um, the Grandmaster calls him the Lord of Thunder or whatever, it drives him crazy, you know, <laughs> um, because these things matter, you know. And then we get Odin. Are you Thor? The god of hammers you know 
oh, um, yeah. for trying to help him figure out his own identity. Although Odin doing that, Odin doesn't deserve to get that line. That's a great line. That's a great realization for Thor. And Odin is the fucking worst. Yeah, yes. Before we digress to Odin yes. being the worst, which I'm 100% mm-hmm. behind, I want to say I'm so angry that he got that line. I want yes. I want Thor to say it or I want mm-hmm. I want Hela to say it mockingly and then he gets mm-hmm. angry and says, "No, I'm the god of thunder." I want Valkyrie to pep talk him. I want literally yeah. anyone, Loki, literally anyone, Korg, yeah. literally his shoe, get a note in a fortune cookie. I don't care. Right. But don't Anybody get it from Odin. But Fuck. Odin, because Odin, Odin's the goddamn villain. Odin yes. should be the goddamn villain. He should be the antagonist for them all because he is the worst. I mean, worst father ever, right? He triangulates his kids by picking a favorite and then pitting them against each other, right? Yeah. Um, lies to Loki, continually treats him as a second class son, locks up his daughter, Hela. Never tells Thor and Loki that they have a sister. Uses his daughter to be his executioner, to be his hand of violence. And then when she personifies everything that he has made her into, locks her up. Also knows that eventually he's going to die. And then everybody else is going to have to deal with it. I mean, fucking Odin. Okay, Boomer. Just ruin the planet and leave it for your grandkids to fucking clean up. The universe. He's a super Boomer. He is a super Boomer. He is the worst. Okay. Uh, All the Boomers that are out there listening to us, which is probably not many. Just don't take it personally. It's, you know, it's fine. It's a mindset, friends. It's a mindset. It's a mindset more than necessarily the generation that you're in. Um, But, I mean, just the idea that he had to know that when he died, this unbelievable terror was going to be unleashed. And yet he does nothing. I mean, a heads up before the last two seconds before you die, which, by the way, only happens because Thor and Loki find him. He's not calling out to them to be like, oh, by the way, I'm about to kick it, so let me just tell you a little something. Um, He doesn't even do that. That is just an accident of fate. Um, So, yeah, all of this with Odin, he is the worst. He is a villain. I, I, I hate him so much. Yeah, it's really bad. And And let me say... Uh, not because yes. I'm necessarily so clever, but because I was very annoyed by literally everything Odin does in two movies mm-hmm. that even before this movie came out, I was like, boy, I bet they wish they'd realized what a hot commodity Loki was going to be when they made the mm-hmm. first movie, because it wouldn't have all been much better and more interesting and more narratively yeah. coherent. Also, mm-hmm. if Odin was the on purpose antagonist. Yes. And that Loki and Thor were like co-protagonists who couldn't get along right like that right. was that was the big thing so that part mm-hmm. of the i don't know you can spin all kinds of shit where part of the humility thor had to learn was working with loki whatever the point yeah. is do that two movies because that's kind of where we wound up in the second movie sort of you know by bit. accident mm-hmm. nah. but nah. man just imagine what a what a what a different story these three movies would be together if they'd oh, been yeah. a little more just honest about what a shit heel Odin is from Jump. Yeah, Odin is garbage. Odin is straight trash garbage on fire and I hate him. Um so yeah, it's it's really 
it's hard because when you can see so clearly that someone is terrible and yet the text doesn't recognize it. The text almost feels like it is rubber stamping Odin as a, I mean, they definitely, I think, acknowledge that he's, you know, flawed. In, in I this think movie, is as yes. far as they yes. seem to go is that he's flawed. He's not perfect, right? He is so far from not perfect. He is the literal worst. Um, and I absolutely despise him in this whole thing. And I want him to be the bad guy. Um, yeah, I want it textually, right? Like, that's the yes. thing. I want, I want it, it textually to be textual. Acknowledged. Mm-hmm. And that's another reason I don't want him to get the pep talk at the end, because Loki yeah. and Thor should be angry with him. They should be upset yes. with him. You stole our last moments with you, our supposedly loving father, because you could have come home any damn time. But no, mm-hmm. you've got to jerk us around. And then you drop this big pile in our lap and then you die. How dare you show back up and give me the bad news bear speech? Fuck you. I don't. <laughs> I mean, my God. My God, you know, um, I do. I do really like, though, like aside from that, aside from Odin, which drives me crazy and needs to be textually acknowledged as the worst. Um, I do really love what we do with Thor. I love Thor's series of losses, you yeah. know, and what they do to him and his sense of himself. Um, you know, he loses his hammer. So there's this moment, though, when Korg says, you know, basically like he he lays out, you know, you have this deep and intimate relationship with this this hammer. And it is like the loss of, you know, friend or love family member. You know, like I don't remember exactly how he says it, but it's such a great way to express what that loss is to yeah. Thor and how much loss he's had. You know, I mean, his father's a piece of shit, but it's his father. He's just lost his father. It's just realize he has this sister that he's never known about, which is a big enough shock in itself. And she's also like really murderous, like <laughs> really kind of terrible, right? You know, so he's got to deal with that. He's, of course, lost Loki a couple of times. You know, Loki dies and comes back and that's kind of Loki's thing. You know, he lost Frigga. Um, he's lost Jane, although apparently that was a mutual thing. Oh, yeah, obviously. (laughs) Then he loses his hair. You know, I mean, he loses a sense of himself like and, you know, it's it's a little bit of a Samson thing, but like losing his hair is part of his identity, too. He's so upset when the guy comes at him with the clipper thing, mm-hmm. you know, like this is no, not my hair. Please don't take my hair, you know, um, and then loses his eye, you know, yeah. and ends up with that eye patch, just like his dad. Right. Who is you know? not a person he wants to be. Exactly. Oh man, yeah, tough. Let me oh, let me God. say, let me digress mm-hmm. back to Korg talking about the hammer and yes. how much I really appreciate this because mm-hmm. Korg's talking about the hammer, Thor is talking about the hammer, but what they're really talking about is that Thor has lost his sense of self. And this is just mm-hmm. I won't go into all the backstory, but this is just a conversation that I have recently had in my real life about how it's uh-huh. like completely reasonable and legitimate for you to mourn the loss of the version of you that isn't here anymore. You know, like, is Mm -hmm. there an accident? Is there a tragedy? Is there a life change that you're not in charge of? You lost your job or your career, whatever it is, that person that you were is gone. And it is completely legitimate and reasonable for you to mourn the passing of the you that was. And that's really what's going on with that broken hammer. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's so it's so great, you know, especially because the hammer was such a source of of his sense of himself, you know? Yeah. And then she 
just it's not like he just misplaced it it's just lost right or whatever like this sister that he hadn't known about comes in and just destroys it you know like a snap of the finger just destroys such a huge part of his identity um and that sends him hurtling you know like both literally metaphorically hurtling into space you know um and him dealing with that and processing all of that and then losing his hair and then you know of course later on losing his eye um but he loses his autonomy i mean she puts that little thing on his neck yes right and he he is no longer in control he's strapped to this chair he's forced to fight you know like he's lost everything you know everything has been stripped away from him and i think it's it's so much fun to see what happens with this character when that happens and so now we've got a thor that i don't just tolerate you know like i love (laughs) this guy i am into this guy i think that he's really great and really interesting and i love that relationship with loki i love the fact that for the first time thor outsmarts loki right (laughs) he underestimates thor's intelligence yeah yeah it's really nice i like that he does that i mean it's you know when thor keeps falling for loki's shit i'm like jesus christ thor how how many hundreds of years have you guys been together you know (laughs) like you haven't figured this out yet you know that's that's a beautiful thing when he says to loki he's like you could be you'll always be the god of mischief but you could be so much more and that's after talking about all this growth and change that he could have loki could have and it's Mm -hmm. because thor has finally had it like that's why he fell for loki's nonsense for hundreds of years or whatever because odin had basically infantilized him he was just Mm -hmm. always going to be this man child crown prince but never the king and he went and got and grew up to the point where he didn't even want the throne and now here we are in the middle of this where yeah it's a it's so good i mean the the fact that not only does he outsmart loki he outsmarts loki not because he got smarter necessarily Uh but because he saw the destructive patterns that they were in yeah and broke out of his own part of that pattern that's he just like rose above like all of this three-dimensional chess that loki thinks is playing once thor just grows as a person it just becomes flat like two-dimensional he's just looking down at it and can and can predict every move loki makes it's amazing it's so wonderful i love seeing that transition in him and you know it's an earned transition it's an earned character arc for thor which i really really love and i think is so great um loki also you know really fun i love me some loki i can't help it you know he's just he's uh, the this whole god of mischief just stirring shit up and the way that he will shift from side to side depending on whichever one is the most interesting to him at the moment, whichever, you know, way to go is the most fun at the moment. Um, And I love that, that sense of chaos with him, you know? Um, It's really, really fun. And I enjoy Loki a lot. How did you like Loki in this movie? I mostly like Loki in relationship to Thor in this movie. I think that this Mm -hmm. is probably the least interesting Loki that we've had on his own merits. Mm -hmm. Like all, you Mm -hmm. know, Compared to the first Thor where he was the, you know, all machinations and in charge. And when he was kind right. of the broken, imprisoned guy that in Dark World, that yeah, was really good. That and, was fun. He was the best part of Dark World. Oh, it was, he was very good. I like Dark World. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, he was the best part of Dark World for me. 
the the conquering but still tricky bastard mm-hmm. from uh, from Avengers. I I feel yeah. like this is the least good Loki we get, but what we get mm-hmm. is very very good, mostly because of what it does for Thor. He's really a prop for Thor in this movie, but I'm super cool with it. Yeah, I don't mind it. I'm here for it. I'm absolutely here for it. I like that. Um, now Hulk. Um, Hulk in this movie, I, well, I've already talked about how, like, I love the split identity with mm-hmm. him and Banner, right? Um, because I love we haven't Banner... had a movie of his since the very beginning yeah. of the MCU, we haven't really addressed that in forever. I know, and we haven't had it with, with Ruffalo, you know, as, as our, our vision of Hulk at yeah. this point, you know? You get, like, um, just a yeah. tease of it in Age of Ultron, but it's not very good, yeah. and it gets wrapped up in a bunch of other terrible shit, and... Yeah, but you, yeah, get, that's, and you just get Hulk's inklings so of it until now. Yeah. Oh, God, but I love him here. I love him here. I love his relationship with Valkyrie. I love the way when he's when he's Banner, they keep looking at each other and like, <laughs> I feel like I know you. Like, there's it's just so weird <laughs> sweetness. There's this sweetness. I love the way they fight with each other in this really playful way when he's Hulk, you know? Yeah. Um, it's just, it's really, really fun. And he's... He's kind of delightful. I I also enjoy a Hulk that has, you know, he speaks. He can carry on, you know, a a certain level of conversation, you know. Um, I I like the way that he bonds with Thor. I like when he's sad when Thor, no, friend, don't leave. Um, I love the way that he delights when Thor gets electrocuted by the invisible fence there. You know, I mean, it's just there's so much stuff in in Hulk that's so incredibly sweet. And even while, you know, he's being basically held prisoner and forced to kill, you know, kill various Dugs. Dugs and then the new Doug, right? Yep, yeah. Uh, another day, another new Doug. So it's really, really fun to see him because... Hulk and Banner have always had this fight, you know, over who's running the show at any given time. Mm -hmm. And this is where we get Hulk and he is just there. You know, he can just exist as an entity unto himself. Usually he only comes out when Banner needs to aim him at something, you know. Um, So for Hulk to kind of have his own character growth, his own character space, building his own relationships, um, that to me was a lot of fun. What did you think about the way Hulk was uh, was dealt with in this movie? I'm going to be honest that part part of my reaction to Hulk in this movie, it's impossible for me to sort of uh, like divorce Right. From Planet Hulk, you know, mm-hmm. where where he was just, you know, again, just full of so much more like pathos and tragedy and stuff. Right. That yeah. said, that said, uh, within the confines of this movie, I do really like it. Um, mm-hmm. It shows that given enough time, even Hulk's horizons can be expanded. Right. Like he's yeah. he's not the same Hulk that he was when he only got to, when he was fighting to come out, you know? Mm -hmm, Um, Right. And then he's fighting to hang on and stay out for as long as he can. And Banner hates it because he remembers it. And this is actually feels like it's more healthy for both of them, except Banner never Mm -hmm. gets to come out, you know? But Banner doesn't remember any of that raw nerve stuff that he was talking about in Avengers. So I I really like, yeah, that it's both individual growth for Hulk Mm -hmm. and Banner, but it's also growth of them together. Mm Mm-hmm. And it's why, minor spoilers, I'm going to be disappointed that we kind of jump over the biggest chunk of that in another couple movies. But just put a pin yeah. in that. But that starts yeah. here. That starts here, yeah. I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like it. And then when we get Banner back, 
you know he's so <laughs> tense and he's so scared he's so freaked out i'm not fighting any more beans i'm sick of it <laughs> thor i think i'm freaking out you know <laughs> he's he's just he's so fun and i mean i feel terrible for him because the stress of all of it oh, you know yeah. Um, and how hard that is for him. And he's got this green on him. There's always a little bit of Hulk underneath. Like yeah. you can see his skin is green. His hair is green in these various places, you know, that, that even when he's Banner, he's still a little bit Hulk, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but when he jumps out of um, of the, the spaceship with Valkyrie. And she's, you know, like, what are you doing? He's like, you'll see. And then he just lands with a splat as Banner on the rainbow, Bifrost, whatever the hell it is. Um, That moment is so, I mean, it's fun and it's funny, but it's also, like, just so tragic. Like, he's, he's losing his, his hold on everything. Like, poor Banner is just out there you know but then of course he becomes hulk and beats up the the dog the wolfie you know fenris um what was fenris fenris Fenris. um yeah i mean it's it's a kind of it's fun and it's so much messier that's a big heroic moment for bruce it's a huge heroic moment um and and but i like that it's that it's undercut a little bit you know that he's not in control that part of part of the the source of like this internal tension with banner and hulk is that he's just not in control so mm-hmm. here he is trying to like take this moment and do this thing and it gets messed up and it, i mean eventually he does he is able to pull out hulk and and go and get the you know uh get the dog but that moment when he goes splat it just it's so much more textured and interesting than him turning into hulk in midair and landing with a thud you know that kind of thing you know i agree with you 100 percent, and that's probably an opportunity for me to talk about some of the stuff in this movie that maybe doesn't work as well for me before we get into sure. the really serious stuff you know yeah um, mm-hmm. i've only seen a couple of uh Waititi's other movies and this mm-hmm. is very much in line with the sense of humor from those other movies mm-hmm and most of the time, the jokes and the irony smashes really land for me. However, yeah, I am no stranger to camp. I love camp. Mm-hmm. Superhero mm-hmm. stuff is sort of camp from jump, no matter how serious you want to make it. Like, we are all agreeing that this ridiculous shit in front of us is the most important thing in the world for the next two hours, right? Right. And part of the reason that that works for me mm-hmm. is that the people in the story do not realize that they are in a ridiculous story, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Way too often. I don't want it to be 0%, but way too often in this movie do they realize they're in a ridiculous story. There's just a mm-hmm. little too much awareness of where they are. There's just a few too many irony smashes. Like there's never a moment yeah. when it can just go ahead and land and be a heroic moment exactly. Like there's always right. Now, mm-hmm. I also will say having read a couple of articles to prepare for us to have the more meaty conversation Mm -hmm. i am led to believe that this is uh probably a cultural disconnect for me which what a wild situation that i as a straight white american male (laughs) would go to a (laughs) disney film and have a cultural disconnect from the humor what the Mm -hmm. hell so i'm actually (laughs) going to count it as a win because i'm learning a little something here but i really do feel like if we did that too often or all the time 
that it would kind of undermine the entire enterprise. That's what I think. Overall, it works in this movie, but there's a couple where I'm right. just like, it's too goddamn far. Can you just let him say one thing without a joke <laughs> once? Just, can we just have one moment, right? Now, what did you think about that? I, I don't know how you reacted to that, uh, to, you know, that every moment was a gag waiting to happen. Did that every work for you, sort or of do you undercut. feel like you're in the similar situation to myself? Um, yeah, oddly enough, mostly the humor worked for me. Although the first time I watched it, I, I didn't. Um, there were some of the things like when Hulk gets out of the bath and he's naked, <laughs> yeah, you know, and Thor's like, can't look, can't look. And that whole kind of like, you know, that kind of like referencing that really tired, you know, gay panic kind of thing from the 90s that was the joke everywhere, right. you know, yeah. um, like a man cannot see another man's, you know, full Monty with it without it being like whole years it's like in my brain in my brain. like that kind of stuff you know some of those jokes kind of fell a little flat for me um but i kind of i kind of enjoyed it this time and maybe it was because i was expecting it you oh, know okay. that yeah. like because because the first time i watched it i remember being like okay you know let's let's not turn everything you know into this um but i did i appreciated it more um i really appreciated it in valkyrie uh, Valkyrie, I, I felt like there were a lot of jokes with her, like the, you know, you have until I finish this drink and then right. she's done, yeah. you know, when she comes out to get her big entrance and she falls drunk off the side of the, um, the thing. <laughs> right. Like, I actually really enjoyed that. And with Valkyrie, I feel like we get, oh God, Valkyrie. I mean, Valkyrie is honestly the most amazing thing in this movie and was the thing that I liked about this movie the first time I saw it when I really hated this movie. So, mm -hmm. I mean, that's how good she is. Um, but I mean, I love I love the way that she has that innate vulnerability. You know, she's drunk all the time. She has she has become you know, this um, essentially she's a scrapper, which is a slave trader, right? Yeah. You know, um, she's she's doing terrible things and just getting through the goddamn day. But you can see the pain that she's in. And as we go through the movie, of course, we learn the source of that pain, what that's about. And to have somebody from Asgard show up, you know, I mean, that's a big deal and know what she was. You know, yes. I mean, it's only as guardians that understand what that tattoo means, what those markings mean, you know. Um, and so for all of that, um, she works for me beautifully in this movie, even with all of the the jokes and kind of the lighter side of her, because there is, I think, so much tragedy within that character so much heartbreak within that character that that having those lighter moments like when she's you know messing around with with hulk which is just so freaking adorable the way the two of them <laughs> fight and we're we're friends you know um i don't know i mean it, it was a nice mix for me it really worked for me with her with valkyrie's fantastic that's 100 uh, percent legit and and even yeah. when the piss is being taken out of her it's mm -hmm. in. I like it. Like she gets the piss taken out of her big entrance at the beginning. She's yes. maybe the only person who gets an unironic smashed big entrance at the end. Like when she's doing the yeah. walk down the down the bridge oh, with the yeah. fireworks behind her. It's just all swagger, and I love it. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. And one of the best things for me was watching Tessa Thompson play the same mm -hmm. character, but at very different points. Like. 
she is so stern and still cynical mm-hmm. and angry in the courtyard until she agrees yeah. to team up with them. And that's when they start having like the, the kind of banter between her and Bruce. And yeah. she is more, except for the bottle throw, she's very snarky with Loki instead of just threatening mm-hmm. to murder him all the time. Like she's almost like kind of coming back to a better version of herself. Still the same yeah. character, but Tessa mm-hmm. Thompson is playing her completely differently. And I love it. It's right there. Oh, it's yeah. all right there in the performance. Yeah. Tessa Thompson is fantastic. And by the way, how wonderful is it to have a woman of color in that role? Yeah, it's a big it's a big deal. And of mm-hmm. course, it pissed off uh, all the usual suspects, but they can all just shut the fuck up and drink their own tears like she's yes, great. Exactly. Um, and we got a glimpse of Brunhilde mm-hmm. in her flashback. Those yeah. beautifully rendered flashbacks who died oh, those for were her. Gorgeous. Yeah. So, I mean, we saw the Brunhilde we know from the comics, more or less, die for her. Um, mm-hmm. I really like that. It makes me think that there's more to that. I mean, it's kind of queer baity. I don't well, like that they can't just yeah. come out and say that they were together, but I feel like that's Can we the, not just have some text? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. That's definitely know? the subtext, but I wish that they'd had the guts to make it textual. So I wish that they did, too, because I actually really liked that, because they did a lot of this. There were There were a lot of these, like... Um, you know, chemistry moments with her and Thor, you know, where mm-hmm. you get this like, not that she can't be, you know, also bisexual, sure. but I do like that, you know, because I guess part of it, part of that, it doesn't bother me that like, you know, maybe she's bisexual or whatever. What bothers me is that it's always feels like, you know, our... Our standard hero guy always gets the girl as the prize for being, you know, for doing whatever it is that he does. And I didn't want Valkyrie to be a prize for him. 100%. Like, yeah. So that it bugged me in that way. Um, But I really liked the idea that she had lost the woman that she loved, you know, in that battle. And her purpose. Yeah. I mean, I mean, she lost both her, I mean, I guess for lack of a better term, Everything. professional yeah. purpose as well mm-hmm. as her private personal purpose, like in the same yeah. moment. Wow. Yeah. yeah. And identity. You know, yes. who is she now? I'm a scrapper. And she right? wants to be somebody else, which is, you know, yeah. kind of different from Hulk, who wants to be Hulk and Banner, who wants to be Banner yeah. and Thor, who's like, I don't know what being Thor means, but I'd like to figure it out and be it. You know, right. And she just was mm-hmm. like, I want to be somebody else, anybody else. Right, um, right. Really good. But she's also integrating those two selves in the end when she's mm-hmm. like, oh, I'm not going to stop drinking, but I'm right. going to stop running. And I was like, that's a synthesis. That is the those two previous yeah. versions of herself coming together in some kind of new version. It's very good. But you see her hair come down. Her hair comes down. It's the same way that it was in the flashbacks. Uh-huh. So she is integrating herself. And she's definitely like angling back towards the mm-hmm. sort of original version herself because she puts back on the Valkyrie uniform and stuff. But mm-hmm. again, I just don't think that the Valkyrie from before the tragedy would have swaggered out with quite that level of swag, you know? Right. Um, yeah, it's really, it's really like she's becoming the best part of herself. So she's pulling the stuff from Sakar and wrapping it mm-hmm. up in her battle armor and going out to kick some ass. It's very good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, it's it's so fantastic. All right. Are there any characters, anything that we didn't touch on yet before we get into this like deeper part of this discussion? Uh, the Grandmaster's funny. Oh, Jeff Goldblum is the Grandmaster. Yeah. 
is very funny. Yeah. He's good. It's That's a great a, performance. Yes, very good. It's and, a great um, performance. I do not know her name. I don't know the actress's name. I don't even know her the name of her character uh, in the movie, but the bodyguard, the sidekick, yeah, yeah uh, is so great. Um, mm-hmm. And is and is actually uh, she. I wish I knew the actress's name because she's in another one of Watiti's movies that I saw. Um, mm-hmm. Just that deadpan delivery and humor is so great. Yes. Um, yeah, I really like a lot of the Grandmaster's Court. It's very fun. I liked that actress. What I did not like is that when Valkyrie first shows up with Thor and wants the money, right? Um, we have basically two women you know, speaking roles, aside from the, you know, the two women that he had just kind of lounging around, barely right, clothed right. all the time. Um, but we have these two women and they're snarking at each other. And I'm just like, OK, like, do we have to have girl on girl hatred like in this, in this movie with so few women? Do we really need to have that moment? That was the only thing that I didn't like. And it wasn't the fault of that character. It's just like the way this this moment was written. I um, I feel yeah. like that's one of your um, raindrops and hurricane examples, though, right? Because yeah, and which is yeah. not not to say that you don't have a point. But if we are going instance, to start populating though, right. characters mm-hmm. with more women, right, mm-hmm. then they're not all going to be pals. And and it was very believable that those two characters would not like one another. So I'm not saying you don't have a point. You absolutely do. How many women do we have in this movie? It's going to be really interesting navigating that in my own sort of mental and emotional space. Right. But how many women do we have in this movie? Like, well, the thing is, it, it is yeah. the raindrop hurricane thing. It yeah. is absolutely that. It is that whenever we have women, they're fighting over a man. Right. You know, and I mean, whether they're fighting over sleeping with the grandmaster or getting his money, like this is the thing. They're yeah. like fighting over yeah. a man um, and that there is the man in between them literally on this. So like the thing is, it is absolutely raindrop hurricane. Like I think that in this particular instance on its own, but in a movie where we have so few female characters like we have uh three significant female we have hella who of course is is tearing up shit in asgard we have valkyrie (laughs) and then we have this woman whose name we don't even know Ah, right. man, I know they said identity. it and I wish I could remember, but I I'm sure that they know. did. But I mean the fact that we like neither one of us, like I know Scourge. Right. <laughs> I got Scourge's yeah. name. Uh, you know, uh, I don't I do not remember a name for this woman. So it's like for me, just in that one moment, I was like, could we not? Maybe, you know. Um, but that was it. That's the only complaint that I have. I actually really, really like that character. Um and uh and I liked her I like the actress's presence, you know, in yeah, the in absolutely. the movie, um, and uh, and so I, I enjoyed all that. I'm glad to know that she is a, a YTT recurring uh, actor, so yes. that's kind of fun to know that she's kind of part of his uh, his entourage, I guess. Um, all right, so I guess now is maybe <laughs> as good a time as any. Let's get to serious. get into this. Yes, this whole. Uh, theme of Thor and colonialism. Thor Ragnarok kind of taking on colonialism. Um, And really showing us a blueprint for what post-colonial, well, not like a blueprint, like follow this, but as stories Mm -hmm. do, suggesting what post-colonialism might look like. Yeah. 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 No, it is. I mean, it's it's really, really interesting. Um, So here's the thing, like we are, uh, you know, aware 
that we are two white people who benefit from the very institutions that this movie illuminates in truth. Um, and it feels a little bit weird to to speak about it um, without having media critics of color to bring in their perspective. Media critics who are talking about this from um, from a, a deeply personally experienced perspective. Um, so one of the things that I thought would be good is both Joshua and I have gone through and done a fair bit of reading, um, kind of preparing for this discussion. And as I was going through and reading these incredible articles, there were certain bits that I just pulled out because I thought they were so great. And so I thought what we might do is um, is read these quotes, you know, identify the writers and give you guys information. We will have links um, in the show notes and we'll have I'll put up links on uh, on social media so you guys can find these writers, read these articles and hopefully read more by them. Yeah, that really felt like the best way for us to address this really important and vital theme of the movie without just like taking all these ideas and making it look like they were ours and we're the super clever ones. Exactly, exactly. So um, I'm going to start with a quote from Angie Han, um, who wrote for Mashable uh, the article, Asgard's bloody history refuses to stay buried in Thor Ragnarok. Um, And her quote was, The story of Asgard has echoes all around our own world, the quote-unquote free world built on the subjugation and slaughter of others, the sanitization of our past and current misdeeds, the younger generation raised on patriotic half-truths. Hella serves as a terrifying reminder that the past has a way of catching up to the present, no matter how desperately you'd like to erase old sins. Man. Uh, quoting from Dan Taipua from the spinoff in his article, Thor and his Magical Patu, notes on a very Maori Marvel movie. He says, the nuance of Valkyrie's portrayal speaks deeply to the experience of indigenous peoples, and Waititi marks this very clearly. Valkyrie has lost her bond to Asgard and its people, losing her cultural identity and eventually losing her sense of personal and even moral identity, burying the trauma of loss in alcohol and even taking a job as a slave trader. When she regains her history, she regains her true identity and returns to defend her homeland and people from an oppressive force. She also shows up in a spaceship in the color of the aboriginal flag amid a massive fireworks show because why be subtle when you can be awesome instead (laughs) friends that's words to live by on their own by the way but oh my god that's so great i absolutely love it uh the next quote that i pulled is from brianna l urania ravello uh she wrote for cause girl and i believe that's with four r's at medium.com we'll have links so you guys don't have to spell it all out (laughs) Um, From Medium.com, her article was titled, We're Far Past Home, But We're Still Here, Thor Ragnarok Through a Black and Indigenous Post-Colonial Lens. And if ever an article title made you want to read, (laughs) (laughs) that's fantastic. Uh, So she says, As much as I adore Ragnarok and appreciate all of the anti-colonialist politics within it, including a joke referring to prison labor as modern-day slavery, and loved hearing and seeing Maori faces and culture throughout, I still dream of a narrative world wherein people of color are the ones at the forefront of our own stories. She also said, To risk your life for a nation that acted recklessly in the first place, thanks for nothing, Odin, and for which sacrificing yourself did not serve or save you, is the epitome of a black experience. And when the smiling white king of that land, who has clearly never experienced any adversity, finally does, 
and calls upon her to help save him from his male-dominated family's own mess, not for anyone's sake but his own, Valkyrie sees his self-serving colonial attitude for what it is and rejects it. That article is so good. That's amazing. So good. We also have Ta Lin Kell for the establishment at medium.com, and she writes in Is Thor Ragnarok a Subversive Takedown of White Supremacy? I will freely admit that I am tired of seeing powerful white men wielding power they do not deserve and earned through violence. That narrative is played out, yet it is the crux of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. In Thor Ragnarok, this trope is challenged by Hela, the firstborn of Odin and sister of Thor and Loki, when she returns from exile to reclaim her spot atop the throne and calls out Asgard's ill-gained riches and powers in the process. As Hela points out in one particularly stunning scene, the spectacular gold of the Asgardian palace was bought through brutal conquest and war. Before becoming ostensibly peaceful, Odin used his own daughter as his executioner, mercilessly taking lives to achieve his place in the kingdom. Then he stashed the murdered bodies in an underground vault, never to be spoken of again. If that sounds familiar, perhaps you know the history of colonialism, including in the United States, where we tout our exceptionalism while ignoring the violence it was built upon. All of which makes the film's ending. Asgard and Hela are completely destroyed by the fire demon Surtur, the lies of perceived superiority left in ashes, particularly satisfying. Oh, my God. This writing is fantastic. And I have to say, you know, that I'm going to I'm going to say I didn't see because, of course, we are culturalized, especially white people, not to see these things in this story. And once I was made aware that there was this colonialism aspect to this movie and started doing the research and reading these amazing writers and more, I mean, there's there's more out there. It's really incredible. And I highly, highly recommend not just that you read from these writers about Thor, but that you follow them um, and read what else they have to say about other media properties, because it, they are just incredible writers and incredible thinkers. Um, so I'm really grateful for um, for this perspective on it. Part of the reason why I like Thor Ragnarok so much more is because of these writers and what they've kind of opened my like they've opened up a space in my vision for this, you know, for me to be able to actually see what YTT was doing um, in a much, much deeper, much, much richer read of this movie. And um, I appreciate that so much. This movie would be fun. And an enjoyable yes. couple of hours if you never recognized or knew any of this. But the fact of the mm -hmm. matter is these themes elevate the material. And it's actually yes. this kind of stuff that I point to in the best superhero or genre fiction. Like this, mm -hmm. this is why you have these sort of pre-existing tropes or structures is so that you can subvert them or use them to bring out some theme that just elevates the whole. I love it. Yeah, it's really incredible. So thank you so much to all of those writers and all of these media critics who go out there and give us their perspectives and allow us to see so much more in these stories. And um, and I'm really, really grateful. So again, all those links will be in the show notes. We will tweet them. We will absolutely support and promote these writers um, and and encourage you guys to to follow them everywhere and, and read everything that they've got going on. So it's, it's real, real good stuff. Um, did you have anything else you wanted to add to that? So one interesting thing about like the first time that I watched this movie, I did just get like inklings of this post-colonial stuff. I'd been reading 
you know. So yeah. I had I had yeah. a couple of ideas, but I was very mm-hmm. thankful for uh, for these writers to kind of illuminate that theme more. And the illuminating mm-hmm. of that theme kind of made me realize a possible other thing going on with Thor as we were talking yeah. about what a mess the narrative is, right? Right. The yes. fact that he is pulled away against his will from the thing mm-hmm. he ought to be doing, right? Mm-hmm. And I don't want to take this metaphor too far. I've thought about it a little bit, but I'm not sure it's rock solid. But it, it was Thor's struggle in this movie really spoke to me and still speaks to me. And I wonder if there are shades of the and, and I, Lonnie and I have this problem where we try and sound sincere and it sounds sarcastic. So hear everything <laughs> that I say here with like sincere capital letters instead of sarcastic italics. Right. Yes. Mm-hmm. That Thor may be a stand in for the actual honest to goodness, well-meaning mm-hmm. cishet white male ally. Mm-hmm. Okay, so if unpacking all of this awful colonial shit at home embodied in Hela is what Thor ought to be doing, he realizes that. Like from the minute he lands on Sakar, he's like, "I got to get out of here. She's going to wreck my home. She's going to kill my yeah. people." He knows mm-hmm. what he's supposed to be doing, but because of all this other bullshit, he gets sidetracked off doing mm-hmm. these things that that kind of have to be done like you can't say he doesn't have to get off Sakar. he clearly does mm-hmm. in order to get back to asgard he can't do that without making friends with somebody who's in or a couple of somebody's who are in really dark places like the bottom line is he has work to do on Sakar, and it's work mm-hmm. that has to be done before he can go do the real work the quote-unquote real work the more important work that is right. on asgard well, he has to work on himself, right? That's because if really he goes to Asgard to. Yes. without changing, he's not going to be effectual in anything that he tries to do. That's right. So, yes. yeah. You know, and I mean, so I think that's, I think there's something to be said for, you know, and again, this is us as white people talking to white people, right? That, um, that, uh, you know, you kind of have to take a good look at yourself. And I think you kind of have to, he had to lose his hair. You know, he had to lose. <laughs> right, had to lose the hammer. He had to lose a lot of his identity. He had to lose the hammer. He had to. He had to like get rid of these things that were so identified with who he had been, and kind of like wake up, yes, you know, and yes. realize some things, and become somebody who could find the power to actually be helpful, you know, to actually do something that's helpful. And it's interesting the way that that is realized in the end when he said Asgard is not a place, it's a people, which, of course, he got from Heimdall. Mm -hmm. Heimdall was the one who said that first. Heimdall, a man of color, was the one who made him recognize this. And then they let Odin say it. And and I'm mad as hell Mm -hmm. about it. Mm -hmm. No, I I, nope. (laughs) <laughs> nope, I'm rewriting it. Head I'm headcanoning it out. Cannon. Absolutely. Heimdall's the one who says this shit to him. Heimdall has the right to say this shit to him. Yeah. Um, are you the god of hammers? Heimdall should have said that. But anyway. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. Um, and, you know, people of color doing our emotional labor is not at all an unfamiliar thing either. You know, <laughs> our emotional mental labor is not an unknown thing. And so this is this is not like a big giant metaphor to sort of let myself off the hook or anything like that. But it's realizing that I have had the feeling that Thor has had in my more real life situations where I'm like, I know the what the bigger problem is. And so Mm -hmm. I'm going to, you know, chip away at that problem however I can. But I don't want to just blunder through there and do it in the dumbest way possible and make it worse. I also have to work on me. So it's like I, I almost 
cannot focus on the more important thing that's for everybody until I take care of some of the stuff that's on me, which is mostly unlearning my own bullshit. Yeah. Um, so, Releasing yeah. all of that shit. Yes. Yeah. It mm-hmm. just really stood out for me how frustrated he is through most of the movie that he can't get back mm-hmm. to Asgard and do the thing that really needs doing. But if he had been able to skip any of the steps in between, he probably would have failed. He probably would have. So, he probably yeah. would have. And that's not a that's not a pass for white people no, to like do not work. do anything. Do the work, get the thing done, you know. That's the other part of Thor. He never stopped trying to get back to Asgard, right? Like it yes. was a process and it wasn't mm-hmm. gonna work until it was gonna work, but he was always working toward that. So it's not an yeah. excuse. It's you better be doing the work somewhere. And if it has to be done on you first, yeah. so be it. Get it done. <laughs> Do it. Exactly. Get it done and just stop dicking around. Right. Yeah. Um, I think that's a really interesting read on that. And I kind of like that. Um, of course, for me, you know, like you saw like the the white male kind of, um, you know, what's going on with the white male on this. And of course, I saw the the Hela feminine rage thing. Right. Um, as I'm watching this in the beginning, like, OK, let me start. Hela is is bad. She's clearly bad. She's <laughs> killing people. She's doing terrible, terrible things. That said, you know, um, even though she is the embodiment of the painted over blood and violence of colonialism and what happens that eventually that bill comes fucking due, right? You yeah. know, um, she also like hit me with this response to like well-earned feminine rage, you know, um, like when white men whose power is in jeopardy come across a pissed off woman ready to take them down. This is how she's represented in her story. She's just bad and evil. Don't listen to her. She's angry. And this is most often seen in response to the the angry black woman thing. Sure. Right? Yeah. Where when a woman is angry and especially if she is a woman of color, she is instantly dismissed because she is angry, despite the fact that that rage is well earned, you know, mm-hmm. and there is no context for her anger here. There is no understanding of what she's been through and why she is that way. Um, and we're so close to having a, like a much more interesting story to tell there with Hela, you know, shunned and locked away by her father. And again, I refer you to Odin, worst father ever. Um, <laughs> Um, who takes no responsibility at all for his part in her trauma or the fact that he spawned the fucking goddess of death. I mean, how did she become the goddess of death in the first place? Because this asshole made her an executioner, made her do these things for him. And then when she did them too well and he decided it was time to stop, he locked her away instead of trying to, like, you know, reckon with what he had done. He painted over the history and Mm. changed it to a history that he liked, you know, which, by the way, is how it's done. So I found this whole thing with Hela um, really interesting and really kind of reminiscent of that. You know, she's she's angry and she's pissed off. And the thing is, like the way she's represented in the story, I mean, she's clearly evil. You know, I mean, she's clearly too far gone. Like she is fulfilling a destiny that was given her. But I have a sympathy for her. This is Odin. And Odin gets to walk off and die a peaceful death. Yes. You know, when this is what he has wrought. And that injustice to me, you know, it just, it grates. It grates. You know, she has a point. Where do you think all this gold came from? Yes. Does no one remember me? Has no one been taught our history? Look at these lies, goblets and garden parties, peace treaties. Odin, proud to have it, ashamed of how he got it. 
you know, which, by the way, in the article that we referenced before by Talyn Cal, um, she does a beautiful run on um, proud to have it, ashamed of how he got it. Oh man! Um, and uh, it's so worth reading, y'all. You guys have got to read those articles. They're so 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 freaking good. Um, but yeah, I mean, so here there's this feminine rage over what has been done to her. And we we get a little bit of it. I mean, she does explain it. You know, we do kind of see her side. But God, I have I have so much more sympathy for her than I feel comfortable having <laughs> for someone who does these terrible freaking things. No, you this know? makes this makes sense. So, mm-hmm. you know, I love the superhero story is metaphor, right? We, we take yes. a thing that is a mm-hmm. huge problem that humanity is going to have to unpack for generations and we personify mm-hmm. it. And then we, you know metaphorically punch it out. That's yes. great. And and from that perspective, I don't want to sympathize with the embodiment of colonialism, right? Mm-hmm. Right. But because we notice how friendly these three films, including this one, are to Odin, we have we, it's it is right that we feel a little umbrage on her behalf yeah. and wonder why he gets to float off into the fucking sunset. Uh, somebody should have been shit talking Odin at the end of this movie mm-hmm. to just put the full bow on it. Like to just say yeah. it had to be done. She had to go. She was too far gone. But Odin's the reason she was too far gone. If anybody had made that textual, it yes. would be perfect. I, exactly. I would feel better about it if somebody had made it textual that Odin is the real like true evil here. You know, yes, um, and should have been for two movies now. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. Um, all right, so here's a moment that I just kind of need a little morality check with you. On. <laughs> oh God! Well, I'm terrified. Let's sure. There's this moment um, when, and I feel I feel like it's wrong to be mildly delighted by a white man saying, "I'm not for sale, and you'll pay for this." And a black woman saying, no, I got paid for this. <laughs> there is something about that, even though it's awful, and selling humans is always awful, no matter who is being sold. There's something about that moment that just, I don't know. No, I think... I feel wrong. I feel like it's wrong to feel that way. No. Okay. So, obviously, I think riding that pony too far would be bad. But <laughs> exactly. since the yes. whole point of that scene is that mm-hmm. subversion... And yeah. for us, later on, we're going to be all about Valkyrie. Once we find out she's a Valkyrie, once we find out oh, she's yeah? on Thor's team, we're going to be all about her. I'm all about her now. Uh, well, no, yes. I got paid for this. I am all about her in that moment. But that's the yeah. trick. We have to remember that part of her damage mm-hmm. really made her a terrible person for a really long time. She sold humans, or, or at least she sold sentience, yeah. right? Yeah. And... I think it's I think it's entirely appropriate to appreciate that line and the the scene and the subversion mm-hmm. that's going on there and then also yeah. to catch yourself feeling that way and go ew all of yeah. that is correct like I think that is okay. that is how the scene is best taken in Well you know and and the awareness of it you know yeah. the awareness yeah. of it and and all of that like and that's I can't I just I'm I'm really the more I talk about this movie, the more I love it. And I'm really glad that I've changed my mind about it. I love when I discover that I'm wrong, you know, especially (laughs) when I discover that I'm wrong in this way. I love when I discover that I'm wrong 
and something deserves much more of my love and respect than it got. As opposed to the other way, when I find out that, oh, God, I've loved this thing and it's just terrible. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, we've all had that moment, some of us very recently, and (laughs) it's bad. I mean, it's a good learning moment, but it's not fun. This is a much more fun way to do that. Yeah. Yeah. I have one more question. Ah, sure. Where's Lady Sif? We get Listen, we get Fandral you... and uh, Hoosits and Hogan are all killed. Hoosits? It's Which fine, one is really. Who's They've it's? been barely characters. It's fine. Um, are you trying to get me in trouble with the listeners? Because you're like, hey, Josh, where's Sif? And I'd be like, I don't care. <laughs> I've never cared, except for that time she was on Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. So I don't care. I love Sif. I love I, Sif. I know. I, well... <laughs> I don't know why. And you know what? It's a really good thing that Sif is not in this movie because yeah. she would be wildly overshadowed by both Hela and Valkyrie. Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, yeah. I look, she's fine. I liked her very much on Agents mm-hmm. of S.H.I.E.L.D., but oh, yeah. man, as daylight doth a lamp next to these other two titans. Come on. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. Also, if they never put her on screen, then they didn't have to have Hela murder her, which means they can bring her back for love and thunder when it's all super complicated. Ooh, that can be fun. Uh-huh. That could be fun. All right. Maybe she was on vacation it's somewhere be like in Midgard. Love quadrilateral. Right. <laughs> all right. So, Joshua, Thor, Ragnarok, what's your favorite part? My favorite part is for real Thor and Loki in the elevator. They have an actual Mm -hmm. heart to heart. They say Mm -hmm. real things to one another. It's the it's also Mm -hmm. our first inkling of Thor starting to break the patterns because he actually Mm -hmm. does reverse psychology on Loki. Yeah. (laughs) And it works, you know, Mm -hmm. but he also says some real stuff. There was this the first time I saw it, like it was almost a tear to my eye, even though this is kind of a funny scene and it's about to be into Mm -hmm. a really funny scene. But there's Mm -hmm. this moment when Loki's like, it's I'll go away. You'll never see me again. It's what you always wanted. And Thor's response is, I adored you. I -hmm. thought we were going to be together forever. The two of us messing Mm -hmm. up the universe. You're the one who keeps walking away. And it was just. Man, it just it just really hit me and just really spoke to me. And I think Hiddleston really sold it, too. Like, yeah, something drains out of I think Loki still got to do that one last, you know, frog and scorpion or try in the garage. But I think that that was the beginning that gave him Mm -hmm. something to think about when he was frozen on the floor. And I think that that conversation and his little time out is why he came out the other side (laughs) a better person. So I really love <laughs> Thor and Loki in the elevator. It's maybe the first time yeah. I actually buy them as as siblings, honestly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I really liked them too. Um, I have to say for me, it's just everything Valkyrie. I was trying to pick my favorite Valkyrie moment. And I think maybe, maybe it's her horsing around with Hulk. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Her fighting. Um, that's real sweet. But just, I just... Everything Valkyrie I love in this movie. I love the character. I love the way she's drawn. I love the way Tessa Thompson plays her. Um, I I just love everything about her. So she was a delight for me in this movie. That's right. Despite despite how much of my internal thought life you all got a glimpse of with Helen Valkyrie, she's not my favorite part. She's Lonnie's favorite part. <laughs> Well, now you're getting a little bit of my internal life. Mm-hmm. 
All right. If you enjoyed this conversation and would like to join in, come find us on Twitter. I am at Lonnie Diane Rich and Joshua is at Joshua Unruh. And the hashtag is listen up, a-holes. This episode of Listen Up A-Holes was brought to you by the Chipperish and Pulp Diction producers who support us on Patreon at the power producer level. These people are the reason why Listen Up A-Holes is coming to you free and ad-free right now. So thank you to our March producers, Sarah, Shelley, Kristen, Kevin, Alice, Erica, Abigail, West, Jonathan, and April. Thank you, producers, and to everyone who supports Chipperish Media or Pulp Diction Productions, this message is for you. Go ahead and make grave mistakes all the time and see if everything works out. <laughs> to find out how you too can support Chipperish Media or Pulp Diction Productions, our Patreon links are in the show notes. Other ways to show your support write a great review on Apple Podcasts, tell your friends about the show, or take a trip through the devil's anus. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of Listen Up A-Holes. We'll be back next time with our discussion of Black Panther. Yay! Until then, goblets and garden parties, peace treaties, Odin. Proud to have it, ashamed of how he got it. <laughs>